1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward.
0: And freedom will be defended. One of the greatest responsibilities that can be bestowed upon a police officer is the close protection of another person, be it the prime minister or a member of the Royal Family, my next guest is one of the select few who has bared such responsibility. A police officer who, from when he first joined, had a dream to protect those that needed it most. From establishing himself as an effective response officer, retired Metropolitan Police Sergeant Simon Morgan quickly moved on to the Metropolitan Police's Territorial Support Group, TSG, and then London's Frontline Armed Response, SO19, Where he found himself in the thick of it in 2007 when London was rocked by the 7 7 attacks. In the latter part of his career, Simon achieved his dream and formed part of the elite team that keeps the British Royal Family safe SO14, the Metropolitan Police's Royalty Protection Team. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Simon and I look back at his career from leaving home to a teary Welsh mother. To responding to the May Day riots and his move into the Met's elite SO19 unit, responding to some of the most dangerous incidents across London. Simon Morgan has seen just about all there is to see in London and he and I review all this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve and another week and another fantastic guest. We've covered so many different subject matters and areas of policing. You know, this vocation provides so much variety for people to explore. But one area that we haven't really explored with any too great detail is the area of close protection. You know, close protection is something which a lot of people associate with movies such as The Bodyguard and other stereotypical movies where you have the kind of Kevin Kevin Costner character that saves the day. But there's a very serious element to that role, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. But uh, the chap who's joining me now, Simon Morgan, um, joined the police in 1995 and finished his career in 2013 as a sergeant. Royalty Protection. It's an absolute honour to have him on the podcast this evening to walk us through his uh, incredible career. Simon, good evening. Welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Good evening, Ollie. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to to have a chat this evening.
0: No, it's an absolute pleasure. Like every good detective at the start of a podcast, I'd like to go right back to the beginning and ask you, why policing?
1: A very good question. I just found myself drawn to it. Um, yeah, you know, I just found myself drawn to policing. I I, I liked what policing was all about. You, you kind of you saw it on it on a day to day basis. Um, I lived in Swansea, and you, you saw police officers walking around, and you saw police officers um, at football matches, and uh, on a night out, you saw members of the uh, equivalent of the public order unit, and you thought, yeah, you know, this is a this is a good job. I kind of, I like everything that, that I see. And I think I looked at it as a career. You know, I generally thought I could make a career of being a, being a police officer. I liked the, the teamwork that was involved. Uh, I liked the, the sporting context, you know, I did uh, played sport then and thought, you know, the police was a good place to carry on playing sport as well, to represent the police service. Um, and yeah, I just thought it I just thought it was me. I just thought I could kind of fit in to the police service and make it my career.
0: We often talk about sometimes the response from family and friends when one tells them openly that you're going to be pursuing this policing career because it's sometimes met with a level of trepidation as to kind of what does this mean for our family in terms of where does the allegiance lie in terms if we do speed or we get a ticket or there's a problem. What was the reaction from family when you told them all that you were going to be heading down to London to join the Met?
1: Yes I mean that was kind of quite interesting so I got on the I got on the bus from Swansea on the 9th of September, 1995. And my mum was quite emotional about me going. And as I was kind of leaving the bus depot, my kind of dad turned to her, said something, and she got even more emotional as I waved kind of from the window. Oh, uh, a number of years later, I spoke to my dad and said, you know, what did you actually say? Um, and he said, he'll never be back. You know, in so much oh, wow. as he's now... He's now gone. He's gone in his career. He's he's moved to London. And having been someone who had never left Swansea, I'd always lived and worked in Swansea, apart from going to university. But even when I was in university, I got back to Swansea as often as I as I could. Um, yeah, from uh, joining the police service, I think it was more a welfare issue than than anything else. That that was their only concern. There certainly wasn't any blurred lines between speeding tickets I think it was more a case of um, you know dare I say it, you know mummy's little boy going to London and joining the police and general a concern for my welfare and uh, certainly in the early days my my grandparents were I'd always ring them extremely concerned how they were because they were getting uh, getting on in years but I think you know I thought I was ringing them to find out how they were but they wanted to speak to me to find out how I was, you know, how was how was life living in London and, you know, how was I coping and things like that. So it was actually a degree of kind of role reversal around that. Everybody was more concerned about about the welfare of, of myself, of joining the police and, and putting yourself in harm's way.
0: Did you think you were ready for such a career in policing in terms of the research you'd done and witnessed some minimal confrontation that the police have to deal with and some of the challenges did you think you were ready at the time you marched through those gates in September 1995?
1: Yeah, very much so. I'd, I'd been in university in, in Cheltenham, uh, the University of Gloucestershire, from 92 to 95. And I knew when I went to university that I was going to leave and join the police service. Uh, initially, I applied to Gloucestershire to join um, the Gloucester Constabulary, as it was then, because I was I was happy living in Cheltenham and it was It was easy enough to get back and forth Wales. I was still very much a a home bird at that point. Um, But my application uh, actually got stopped by Gloucestershire at the time because they were currently undertaking their investigation into Fred and Rosemary West. And subsequently that cost Gloucestershire a lot of money. And it was in the old days where police services just just simply ran out of money. And if they ran out of money, then recruitment was the first thing to go. Then it was... Um, repairing of vehicles, putting mileage on vehicles, and so on and so forth. You know that was the that was the old days. So they subsequently said, "Oh look, you know, really sorry, but you can't come to Gloucestershire, Constabulary. You've got to go, got to go somewhere else." And I had actually applied to join the Met at the same time, using kind of my parents' address. So so I, you know my my time in university was just merely geared up to to joining the police service. I I worked when I was in university. I, I worked as a nightclub doorman um, to make ends ends meet, as well as a, a fitness instructor for the YMCA. So I was very much used to dealing with with conflict, used to working with the police, and it and it just geared me up that I wanted wanted to go to the police. And my my career path was was very much fixed in my mind. I knew where I wanted to go, and I, I ultimately wanted to end up in protection, which was one of the reasons why I'd. I'd looked at Gloucestershire as well because they had a, a royalty protection department because they were responsible for looking after Highgrove and Gatcombe Park, um, albeit in a slightly different context now. And uh, it would be a, it was a totally different role. But I knew where where I wanted to go, and then once I joined the Met, I knew what steps I needed to get to protection.
0: So the vocation of policing and we say this every week, is incredibly complex in terms of the legislation, policy and procedure that we have to learn and repeat verbatim to be able to pass those exams and to be able to graduate successfully. You know, you entered Hendon with an array of qualifications, very educated. How did you find the theoretical side of policing as well as the physical side of policing while you are going through the academy, the training?
1: The training I thoroughly enjoyed. And if I look now at the current woes of the police service i say a lot of that stems from the fact that there is no real police training college anymore yeah um you know hendon was a was a fantastic institution and it was great at weeding out those that weren't suitable for the police service for a variety of different reasons not just the ones who didn't have that ethos to stay within the police and, and didn't have that desire, um, or those that were weren't um, academically or, or physically capable of it. But a lot of the interaction with people, um, Hendon puts a lot of different challenges in your way, um, both in terms. You know, Hendon, Hendon used to have a bar, and you know, it, how you how you deal with with alcohol and how you um, actually converse with your colleagues. You know, was Having alcohol and the, and the effects that kind of has on you, you and your behaviour. Um, as a male, you're also kind of put in with a lot of females. How do you, how do you um, converse and behave around females? How do you behave around people that are, that are different from you, come from different ethnic backgrounds, and see uh, society in a in a different way? To you, you know, Hendon, Hendon gave you all of that. You know, over your twenty, over your twenty weeks, as well as the the discipline, and, and it installs in you exactly what the police service expect of you, you know, they manage all those training staff, manage your expectations quite, quite considerably. And I, I think some of the, the problems of modern policing and modern policing recruitment stems from the fact that there is, you know, very few policing colleges and, and certainly Hendon doesn't exist anymore. You know, it got blown up in one of the Avengers movies by all accounts, which, um, <laughs> you know, is a, is a damning indictment, but um Yes, you know, it, it's what it, it what it stood for and it, it it really, you know, I think it got the right people into the police service and weeded out those that were unsuitable because now you you don't become unsuitable until actually you put that uniform on or rather now you don't find out whether somebody is genuinely unsuitable until you put that uniform on and walk into your police station on your first day. You know, you've already had 20 weeks at Hendon in my day before you got to that. Plus you had a two week uh, visit to your your division as well within those um 20 weeks you know you actually kind of went out and uh, experienced the job with a tutor constable Um, you know then you went into your 10 weeks street duties piece and you know the rest is kind of history but I think some of the problems of policing do stem from the fact that you know there is there is no process anymore certainly no real process you know dealing with things online is just not a not a real process
0: you know you were very close to your mother and father as you spoke about your mother shed a tear as you drove away on the bus heading down to London your graduation from Hendon must have been a very special day for friends and family in terms of you reaching this achievement and and graduating and getting that warrant card
1: absolutely you know it was a great day and I I remember it now and um, kind of mum and dad came up my grandmother uh, came up as well because um, it was really kind of important to hear my grandfather was not well enough to travel, but, you know, to give them the experience and to show them how proud I was and, and almost showcase the organisation that I have now become part of. Um, you know, senior officer was Sir Brian Hayes that took the, uh, took the salute. The, the Met band was there, Mounted was there, dog section was there. You know, everybody had, um, you know, pristine uniforms, white gloves, shiny shoes. You know, and everybody was proud, and, and for me, it was saying, "Look, this is, this is what I've joined." You know, this is a, this is a strong organization. This is the where I want to be. You know, and don't worry, I suppose, um, but that's, that's probably easier said than done because you know you then step out of training school in, into the wide world of policing.
0: And and that's a great point to come on to. So you step out, and that, and this is where really the real training and the really real learning takes place in terms of this is no longer a training village, this is the real thing, and you're dealing with confrontation, you're dealing with domestic violence incidents, you're dealing with trauma on the roads, RTAs, sudden deaths. What were those first couple of years like for you in terms of taking hold all this information coming into you in terms of what you're learning, as well as being able to manage and deal with the people and the public and managing their emotion and your own? How, does, how was those first two years of experience for you?
1: I mean, the learning curve is steep. You know, there's there's no other way of putting into that. But you know, you you have your street duties course ten weeks um, as it was then, and you have your tutor constables who are um, experienced police officers, and they they they're there to show you show you the ropes. And yes, you know how you how you speak to people is is the day one week one learning curve, and I think you take that forward with you throughout the whole of policing. How you how you speak to people is going to uh, elicit some form of positive or negative reaction, depending on what you say. Your your use of language um, is going to either defuse the situation or or increase it. Uh, and you know, and that's why you do such things as process. You know, issuing fines for bustlings and not wearing a seatbelt. You know, it, it's very uh, it's very mundane. And certainly, you, you're there, sit- thinking, is this why I joined the police to give someone a a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt, you know, but actually the the process behind it, um, you know, you don't really fully understand that until you until you get into it and see the value because it's about speaking to people, it's about how you communicate what they have they have done wrong, it's about understanding their communication piece to you, including nonverbal communication and how you control that situation. So yes, you, you step out there, and you know you are learning. From day one, I was very fortunate. I went to a very busy East London police station in Leightonstone, which had every form of society there on its doorstep, and subsequently every form of criminal activity um, that you could ever want is there for you to go and deal with. And in actual fact, I I benefited quite considerably because it was uh, early 1996, and The Canary Wharf bomb had just gone off.
0: At least 100 people have been wounded in a bomb explosion in the east end of London tonight. Eight are now seriously injured, two of them police
1: officers. It came as the IRA claimed in Dublin to have called an end to their ceasefire. It is only the professionalism and courage of police officers and those in the emergency services which prevented a massive loss of life. I have absolutely no doubt that those responsible intended such a loss of life and devastation to property.
0: Good evening. Almost a year to the day
1: after the Canary Wharf bombing, the IRA has dismissed any remaining hopes of a new ceasefire before the British general election. And subsequently there was a lot of aid to Canary Wharf um, around Operation Colgate and the ring of the ring of steel around there and and vehicle checks and security patrols and so on and so forth. And and that initially left a very big gulf in divisional policing, which as a team of six street duty officers, we were now plugging some of those gaps. So actually my street duties was with the operational teams at, at a very, a very early age. So that accelerated my, my learning again, um, which was, you know, which was great. So, you know, something out of, Um, that extreme tragedy and hostility of of an IRA bomb actually allowed my career to develop quicker um, than if it hadn't happened.
0: So when those sort of things happen, such as an IRA bomb, which as you quite rightly point out, was a total tragedy, horrific incident, does that give you a a sense of realisation that policing is a very dangerous job and there is the potential for you to get caught up in the crossfire or a situation which which could lead you to getting hurt. How do you manage those sort of emotions in the early part of your career?
1: Whilst I think you you think about it and accept it, you also don't think about it and you don't accept it. You know, you're, you're very much in that policing mode. You know, you're very much told that you're, you know, you've are you joined the Met Police, you know, you've joined the best police organisation in the world. We've given you the best training, you're working with the best people, and you're going to go out there and do the best job you can. You you don't really think about it at that level, you know. And there were police officers that were killed, you know, round about my time in early early service. Um, Philip Walters was killed in Ilford. Uh, Nina Mackay was killed in Stratford. Both um, both areas that bordered um, Leightonstone. So there were police officers that that were killed, and and you you accept it as being part of the job but albeit you most probably don't think about it because if you do think about it that's going to slow your reactions down that's going to slow everything that you want to do down and and you're most probably going to then become injured you know as it is you still approach everything at 100 miles an hour and you you consider your safety but it's not the only consideration
0: a lot of exposure in those first two years as you say the learning curve is incredibly steep and if there's any job comes in and you need the exposure experience they push the trainee forward right we're going in this together you know we're going to expose you to this and one of those which often we don't know how the body's going to react to is sudden death it's trauma it's it's dealing with those really quite graphic scenes in terms of having to put on that police hat understanding it's graphic but easily being able to manage it deal with it and support the public through any type of situation how did you when you went to your first sudden death where you're dealing with trauma how did you manage those sort of personal motions in terms of you know this isn't nice but i've just got to get through it
1: i mean i I'd, I'd never seen a dead body never seen a dead body until i joined the police um i was very fortunate that my parents are still alive. My grandparents on both sides was the alive, so I'd, you know, I'd never kind of really gone through that um, emotion of having to, to see a dead body. And yes, you're absolutely right. You know, it is the, it is the traditional path of the probationer, um, sudden deaths, shoplifters, and so on and so forth, um, that you get sent, you know, picked up from one side of the borough and sent to the other just to deal with it. And yes, I can remember my first sudden death dealt with on the Lee Bridge Road um, in Leighton. And uh, it was a gentleman who'd passed away. He was a, a war veteran. He'd passed away. He'd last been seen uh, in the pub on Friday evening. Hadn't been seen since. This was either Monday or the Tuesday. Um, and we'd gone in and, he, and he'd passed away in the chair, gentleman in his in his early early 80s. And, um, you know, it, it just looked like somebody sleeping. You know, mm. and it was like, oh, right. You know, that's that's not that bad. From my perspective, it wasn't a... A murder scene or a suicide or anything like that—you know—would be quite, quite horrific. It was just um, a gentleman who passed away in his sleep, and and that was fine. I was I was comfortable with it, and there was there was no kind of big issue. Um, and then the undertakers came, and they uh, took the body away. And as they picked the uh, picked the body up, obviously, kind of the the, the gentleman then uh, dropped his bowels, and what had been in his bowels over the period of kind of 96 hours. And obviously the smell was horrific. Mm. Now the undertakers were very much used to this. And I don't think they could have walked any slower out of the house um, with the body that I was standing behind. And I was desperate to get out into the fresh air. And I can remember thinking, if you walk any slower, I'm just going to push you out of the way and run outside because I was desperate for fresh air because the smell again was something that I'd never ever experienced and um you know like i said it, it sticks in my mind for both those reasons um, and then after that you know you you have seen a dead body you have that kind of understanding and i think then the next one um i dealt with there were members of the family there and you, you, know, you had to kind of speak to them you had to be sensitive around the issues you know understand kind of why uh, what had happened take all those all that information in you know fortunately all the, the sudden deaths that I the dealt with were genuine sudden deaths there was mm-hmm. no suspicious circumstances or anything like that but you you went into each one with an open mind and you know, and you, again as with lots of policing investigations you know you seek to understand what has actually gone on and then you can make your decision from there but um, yeah sudden deaths are, are part and parcel of, of a probationless learning experience on a variety of different levels.
0: And then to throw in the extra dynamic of, you know, only being awake when the sun is up and going to sleep when the sun goes down, suddenly being exposed to eight, 12 hour night shifts, that's a very new experience as well. And things so differently happen at nighttime through the middle of a night shift. Were they a good opportunity to explore and to find people doing wrong? night time you assume that you know it's it's a great period i think i often i really enjoyed night shifts i hate day shifts and afternoon nights was my thing so talk talk me through the experiences of night shift for the first time because we are awake during the daytime we go to bed at night time before we join the police but after that that ends
1: yeah um it was certainly something that i'd never done before and you know you listen to all the experience of how you how you survive night dudes I, i don't drink tea or coffee um So, you know, that was a big issue in some people's eyes. You know, how was I going to stay awake? I I don't drink tea or coffee because I don't like hot drinks. Um, Most people are comfortable with that until you tell people that I also don't drink red wine because that's warm. And more people are horrified at the fact I don't drink red wine than um, I don't drink tea or coffee. Um, You know, and then, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you take some kind of pro to to stay awake and all and all these things. And I just found I was quite fit, quite healthy at that point. Um, and I, I didn't find night shifts, particularly physically demanding. Once you got into the pattern, and I think in in the early borough days, I think we used to do seven nights, you know, on a bounce, you know, once you got into that. But it was interesting to see how your borough changed, how the dynamics changed, how different people um, were now on your borough. And certainly Leighton Stone was, was very much a part of the movement between Uh, the city and and Essex, it was one of those kind of movement corridors and um, lots of things subsequently went through Leighton Stone's ground and Leighton's ground. And um, yeah, seeing how the dynamics changed and then getting your understanding of how you, how you look at criminality and what, what fits and what, what doesn't fit and how the day criminal differs to the nighttime criminal. And, um, and and all the environmental features as well. I can remember a, a burglary had taken place at the the bingo hole on the Leebridge road and the suspects had run off into, into nearby gardens. And, um, you know, we had the area cordoned and and contained whilst we kind of looked for them. And then um, a a PIR light went off in one of the gardens whilst one of the suspects was moving around, you know, and we, I spotted that and and found that that kind of burglar and he was one of the Leighton's uh, kind of top 10 at the time. And, and he was found with a, a bag out of, the, out of the fruit machines, which when we counted it came to about 10 pounds, something all in, all in five pence pieces. But um, yeah, you know how that environment changed and how you learn to understand the environment. And, and I used to like, I used to like nights and I used to particularly like nights in the summer whereby you know, you'd get up onto one of the high, high rise council blocks. On Leighton Stowe's ground, and and you could see the world coming coming alive again. Um, you know, a new day was dawning as the sun kind of broke across London, and and that that landscape, and then just seeing people starting to move around again. You know, the roads getting busier, and and that was always always something I found quite heartening. You know, that every day now it's another it's another fresh start, and you get to witness that when you're working nights.
0: You obviously joined the police with the preconceived notion that you wanted to get into the protection role it's something that you had desired early on you moved into the territorial support group as we often know TSG for short Um, for those that are unfamiliar with that it's stereotypically the carrier vans we see driving around London with half a dozen 10 police officers that sit in the back often seen at large public order events was the move into TSG one to enhance and support that ambition of getting into royalty protection?
1: It was. I I liked what the TSG did. They they used to come on to ground a fair bit and do rapid entries, and you know they were always bringing in prisoners um, from stops and things like that. And I thought, yes, you know that's that's the team role that I really like. I also had a lot of friends because I played met rugby. I had a lot of friends um, from the rugby side that were also on the TSG. You know, and they were saying, now this is the this is the way forward because you also used to get two hours physical training a day." And I thought, yeah, you know that's that's kind of good out of your out of your eight hour day. Um, but I chose to go to Paddington Green, central TSG as it was then. Uh, and primarily I went there because Central TSG also carried firearms officers. It was the only TSG that carried firearms officers, and they did that because of the protection of of Paddington Police station being a maximum security police station for terrorist prisoners, which you know in those in my day initially was was IRA prisoners. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to understand whether I had what it took to be a firearms officer without actually putting all my eggs in one basket of saying, right, I'm going to go straight to SO-19 when the opportunity arises, or or indeed, you know, many years down the line, because you only get to go to royalty when you're an experienced police officer in any case. and then And then find that, you know, I wasn't particularly good with a gun, you know, didn't like the didn't like it going bang or something like that so therefore going to the TSG would give me another aspect of my career if I wasn't suitable for firearms training so that's why I went to went to Paddington Green there was no nobody else that I knew there certainly coming from East London there was nobody else um, at that base that had come from East London it predominantly had come from the west of London and those officers that were working central London already so it was very much a a new experience for me, you know, certainly another set of, another set of colleagues to, to get to know and, and to kind of prove yourself. And I was, I was very fortunate that I went there not, not long after I completed my probation. Um, And I can remember one of the first, first days of of going into Paddington and, and speaking to the old sweats, because there was a lot of lads there who'd already done 10, 15 years worth of policing. The last five of which have been on the, the TSG, very much a, a battle-hardened group of individuals. And um, I said to kind of, one, one lad said to me, okay, where were you um, where were you before? I said, I've been at, been at Leightonstone for the last two years. And they said, okay, where were you before that? And I said, training school. And they said, well, how do you mean training school? And I said, well, I was at training school. And then I went to Leightonstone. And they said, oh, did you come in from the counties? And I said, no, I came from university. And they said, "Well, you've only got just over two years service. Why are you, why are you on the TSG?" And I was kind of, I'm not really quite sure what he's asking me, here. you know. And basically, he was saying, "Well, you're too young in service to be on the TSG. You know, this is this is full of old sweats. You know, battle hardened, battled hardened police officers." And um, yeah, for the first couple of weeks, you know, I really had my kind of leg pulled, and I was, but also I was under extreme scrutiny, you know, to see actually if I should be there, you know, from a you know, yes, somebody had selected me to go there, but now the people that I had to work with, they ha- they had to deem in their own minds, was I good enough to be on their team? And you know, that was um, another another process that you have to go through. You have to prove yourself that you know you can you can run, you can carry the kit, you can uh, put your hands in people's pockets, you can deal with the um, the confrontational role that the TSG has. Um, you know, and you have to have to prove yourself, you know, in a totally totally different role again, having proved yourself previously in the in the job that you were doing.
0: As you pointed out there, you know, you're working with a a group that are battle hardened and ready because TSG and public order work is it can be very intense, very hard work, very confrontational, there's no doubt about that. One of the particular events which comes round annually, which can prove and has proven in history to be one which has required significant public order policing to control and has sometimes caused significant disruption to London is the May Day riots. Let's return to those May Day protests. Show you some live pictures uh, from the city. Activists have thrown projectiles at the police. out of control.
1: Absolutely out of control. What are you doing?
0: Tell us... For our listeners that are listening outside of the podcast, what the May Day riots and event is all about and the TSG's involvement in trying to maintain public order and safety.
1: So the May Day riots, I think they came into, or back into fashion, for want of a better word, within the first year of, of me being on the TSG. And, and that was an excuse for lots of people to, to behave badly um, around a... Um, uh, around a pacific kind of time of year of, uh, of kind of the early part of may and yeah lots of people would would turn up and they're, they they were there to cause to, they were there to protest and um, but within those group of protesters that were those who who sought to to cause anarchy you know they they were protesting about uh, the government they were protesting about redundancies and and all these things it was a coalition of groups that that then came together. And as with lots of these things, there was a group within that who just wanted to cause disorder. And, you know, it was very quickly descend into disorder. And the TSG's role was to deal with that disorder. You had various levels within policing, certainly within public order policing, of levels one, one, two, and three. Uh, Level one is is TSG, and that is is one of your primary functions. The other one is to deal with... um, Disaster. So TSG's role is to deal with disorder or disaster within the Metropolitan Police District. We then have another group of people, the Level the level 2 officers, and they are drawn from borough. Uh, each borough will most probably put out one one carrier and then of a localised area, maybe from the next borough, they'll put one, and that, that will bring the 1, 3, and 21 officers, one inspector, three sergeants, and 21 PCs to create that three carriers. And then you'll have the Level 3 officers who are not trained, in any great way in public order, but they'll be the first line that we'll be dealing with this protest. And as that as that protest escalates, level twos get sent in, uh, and then level ones will get sent in to support the level twos because you know, this is this is your job. This is what you get trained for. We used to go to Hounslow Public Order Training Centre uh, once every four weeks to train as a as a base to train as a unit in public order tactics, in a variety of of different scenarios. And we'd be brought in and we'd work with mounted section and we'd work with dogs. And, you know, the TSG, I think, got the the rough end of that sandwich to a certain extent because you had mounted in front of you and you had dog section behind you. So, you know, you either had the chance of getting kicked in the face by a hoof or bitten on the backside by a dog. So, you know, that's where (laughs) the TSG kind of sat, but you know we were happy happy to be there and and happy to do our happy to do our job and you know you'd be on you'd be brought on first thing in the morning you'd uh, get fed uh, as, a, as a unit and everybody would go to the to the force feeding center which used to be in Buckingham Gate and you'd see all your all your friends off other other TSG units and you know, people that you previously been on borough with and um, you'd all have a kind of good chat and then you'd get deployed and you'd as the TSG would have hours of boredom, you know, you'd be reading newspapers, irritating each other, um, sitting in carriers, and then you know, just waiting for your bit to kick in, waiting for the for the commanders on the day to say, you know, right, we need to deploy the TSG now to get this situation under control, and um, and that's what we used to do, and you know, and that was very similar for for all large scale public order you know, demonstrations. Uh, things such as Notting Hill Carnival, um, you know, the TSG were always that that last line of defence to a certain extent, you know, and, and unfortunately, things normally had to de- descend into a certain level of of anarchy for senior commanders to justify deploying the resource of the TSG to to resolve the situation and, and take back take back the ground and, and and put law and order back into place.
0: When you are deployed. In a in a carrier van, surrounded by your colleagues, um, and you're going, as you say, to you know when you're being called in when that carrier lights up and it's and it's on its way in, you know you're going to something fairly significant that it's required the skill set that you've all been trained to. Is there a level of apprehension and fear as to what you're going to come up against, or is it, or does the adrenaline that you're going through getting to the instant kind of block all those sort of emotions out?
1: I think it's the latter. It very much blocks the emotions out. Um, you know, when you're, you're constantly being told that you're the best of the best, you know, when you, when you join you know, the TSG as a family, and there was five bases uh, in my day, you know, you're told you're going to the best public order unit in the UK. You know, that, that's the first bit. Then you get selected and you go to your base, you know, and then you're told in Paddington, now you're the best base out of all the other five bases, and no doubt. All the other five bases are told exactly the same thing as well. Then you get um, selected for a unit and you're now told you are on the best unit at the best base in the best public order unit in the country. And then you're told you're now on the best carrier, on the best unit, at the best base, in the best public order unit in the country. And it's that mentality that you go, you, you look around and everybody is of the same level as you. You know, there's there's no weakness you're you're there as a team you're there as a unit one three and twenty one there's no there's no weak links you're all there to support each other you know your your colleague knows that he you are standing behind him and you know that you have a colleague standing behind you and and everybody's got got each other's backs and you know you're gonna go through do this job do this job to the best of your ability even if the baddest man in old London town is standing behind that door. You are going to go in there and get him out because you have the skills to do it. You have the psychology to do it. You're doing it with your mates and ultimately there is nobody else to do it. It's got to the point now whereby the TSG have been called and the reason they've been called is that nobody else can do it. So you've got to go and do it because if we don't do it, there is nobody else to do it. So you have to do it. And and it's that it's that psychology, that elitism that you get that gets you through getting the job done. You know, it's that constant um that constant teamwork, that constant camaraderie, the and and the knowledge that you are there to deal with the worst in society in in some cases. You know, in other things, you know, you're you're looking for vulnerable missing people and things like that. But you know, the the frontline staff that you are put in a position to do, it is because there is nobody else left to do it and you are the people that are going to do it.
0: You talk about that elitism and that teamwork. To have those self-beliefs in terms of your transition then into SO19 um, as a specialist firearms officer must have been a very easy transition from one group that has that self-belief to another group that has to have that self-belief the only adage is the significant skill set in terms of the safe use and handling of firearms and and their safe use in the public that transition into armed policing was it an easy one for you?
1: I'd been a firearms officer when I was on the TSG so I'd gone through the the basic um, basic course and I'd had I'd deployed as a firearms officer so none of it was none of it was new from a basic firearms perspective, you understood um, threat and risk, you, you understood the role that you were undertaking as a firearms officer. But a lot of the roles that we undertook on the TSG were very much a security patrol um, type scenario in relation to uh, remembering Sunday or trooping with the colour or something like that. You know, now you're joining S19 you know, I joined the armed response vehicles. And you're going into a proactive policing response now whereby you know you are actually going out there to find the bad guys you know previously in the in the role of um, security patrols you're you're protecting from the bad guys who ultimately if they don't kind of come looking for you you're not going to find one but you join s 19 and you're on the arvs and you're actually going going to look for the bad guys you are you are taking um the confrontational role to them because in, in a similar role to what i said about the tsg and dealing with the baddest people in London in that concept again the armed response vehicles were the only people who could deal with that element of armed criminality um so you know you had to go and learn your learn your trade again you know it's another it's another fresh start it's all rather not a fresh start it's another new start you know you, you leave the TSG as as top of your tree and now you're coming back in at, a, at another level and having to kind of start again and, and convince people that, yes, you've done an ARV course, but you're worthy of, of that seat in that car because of the exactly the same ethos around teamwork that, you know, you've got somebody's back and somebody else has got got your back. You worked in, in three people teams on the ARVs of a driver, a navigator and an, and an operator. And, um, yeah, I was... Fortunate on the personality front in that I went on a team that lots of my friends are on, people that I knew throughout my service, um, both in terms of rugby, being on the TSG with, and things like that. So, so I was accepted as as Simon Morgan the person, but then you've got to be accepted as Simon Morgan the ARV officer. That's the that's the next step, you know. And again, you're under you're under scrutiny constantly.
0: We spoke about at the start of the podcast that your family's anticipation that you'd know you flown the nest in effect and very much I think your mother was obviously going to be worried about your welfare equally your grandparents. When you start moving into those roles where you are an authorised firearms officer, you're in an armed response vehicle, they have that awareness of what you're doing. You equally have loved ones, immediate family, wives and children. How do you how do you support them and their anxieties and fears for your safety? Or do they have that knowledge that you are now a very skilled individual who's able to look after themselves? There must be some level of worry there to some extent.
1: I think it's a bit of both. Was probably, Ollie. You know, that's the way it's it's kind of looked at. There's there's a bit of both. I think possibly my mother had even kind of given up trying to kind of steer my kind of career at any point away from danger at <laughs> uh, that. And, um, I, when I went to the ARBs, I'd, I'd only just, just got married, and um, you know, but my wife was very supportive of of going into that role because it's what I wanted to do, and and I think also there was a mindset of well, actually, now you're you're safer than you were before, you know, you know, now you carry a firearm. If somebody draws a firearm on you, you're a better place to deal with that than if you're an unarmed officer. So you know, even though the um, the level of danger increases you're more equipped to deal with it. You know, you have the necessary training and you and you have the necessary equipment to deal with that armed criminality threat.
0: During your period um, in firearms, um, there was September 11. America is pounded in the world's biggest terrorist attack. Thousands are feared dead after New York and Washington have been hit. Hijack planes crash into and destroy the towers of the World Trade Center. The Pentagon is another target. The White House has now been evacuated. Nationwide panic as Americans try to understand the scale of today's events. Which changed the dynamics and the threat on society not only in the US but globally. And I think we're probably all in agreement that maybe I don't think we realised that threat was in its in its existence as much as it was until that situation unfolded and the and the tragedy which occurred. What was the impact on the guys and girls in those armed response vehicles around London when you've got terrorist threats which are starting to increase, and there is a worry around safety and security of the city, you know, of, of London more broadly because that's the area you're looking after. How do you manage that risk? Is it just becoming more situationally aware, or is it just dealing with each threat as it presents itself?
1: The, the dynamics around terrorism massively changed, you know, from dealing with Irish Republican terrorism through mm. to Islamic fundamentalism, and, and what the um, the methodology that they were going to use against you that that changed quite considerably. You know, the the, the IRA always, nine times out of ten, wanted to get get away. You know, they had a, uh, a procedures in place that they they wanted the fear of terrorism more than actual terrorism themselves. Yes, you know, there was some tragic circumstances, um, such as the Harris bombing, which um, we've just had the anniversary of just before before Christmas and, you know, whereby there was a loss of life. But lots of times they just wanted to make the threat of terrorism. With regards to dealing with Islamic fundamental and suicide killers, that changed the dynamics completely, you know. And on the firearms team, we were told, you know, that people are now going to come to the UK and blow themselves up in the streets of London. And we were, we were prepared for that. We were trained for that. But then, when it started happening with the the seven seven bombings, it still brought it whole, all home to you that, right, okay, this is this is for real now. You know, something that we had considered maybe to be on foreign shores. Um, a lot of the firearms training team had gone out to areas of conflict and had a look how people dealt with suicide bombers there, um, gone to Israel and had a look at how they dealt with them there and then brought a training package um, back to the UK. But now, now this was real. You know, it, This has happened. And yes, uh, as, as members of you know, SO19 and the armed response vehicles and the SFO teams, as well that sat above us with their specialist skills. Um, you are now going to be the ones that are going to be dealing with this. You know, people, members of the public are going to put up people with, with rucksacks acting strangely on tube stations, on buses in, in large public areas, and you are now going to have to go there, make a split second decision as to whether this person is going to do everybody harm, or whether they're not. You know, and you've got that split-second decision as to whether you're going to then take a life to protect a life, and yeah, it, it kind of came down to you even more so than when you're dealing with uh, armed criminality, such as drug gang, drug dang, armed criminality, such as drug gangs um, or murderers or something along those lines.
0: Because it, we, you know, we talk about the seven seven terrorist attacks on London, which is a day which none of us will ever forget because it changed the dynamics of London forever but you know we went from being awarded the olympics bid and celebrating that victory of winning the olympics to 24 hours later uh you know the significant loss of life on london streets was just phenomenal and and the carnage which was caused and then following you know then we talk about sometimes things not going right if we reflect on the demenzies incident on the london underground how do those sort of incidents play on your mind in terms of the people you're challenging and maybe the directions you're given from senior management to intercept an individual obviously based on the best intelligence which is available at the time yeah i
1: mean going back to that that situation um my armed response vehicle was parked in trafalgar square when that announcement was made you know i remember the arv being covered in ticket tape when the when the ticket tape guns went off and it was announced you know and, and then 24 hours later um, being at home when those bombs went off and you know the initially it came across as a an explosion on the London Underground and then another one and then another one and you're starting to think, okay, this doesn't doesn't sound right. You know, and then you're you're trying to get more information, you're contacting the base, the base are contacting back, you want to know availabilities because obviously the teams that were on duty, I I think I was on a day off. Um, you know, and then the base is asking, right, you know, how quickly can you get in not to use public transport? Uh, we don't know what the situation is. And then and then rolling into the next, what became the next couple of weeks of actually going, looking for the second set of suicide bombers that followed on from the first set. You know, and very much it was a role that kind of rested with um, S-19 and, and it certainly rested uh, predominantly with the firearms, the SFOs. At that point within the department, um, and they, you know, they were set out to go and find the people who wanted to do us do us harm. Um, and it was a very difficult couple of weeks because, you know, you were putting um, firearms officers into that position to actually now go and hunt people that were prepared to blow themselves up in front of you.
0: There must have been and I describe it this way? A, a peculiar hunger to to get involved, because ultimately this is what you're trained to do. It's I, I suppose any analogy I have is you know we train our our military and our troops to go to war and and to and to fight in terms of providing safety and security globally, and a lot of those soldiers want to go to conflict so they can utilise the skill sets that they've got in terms of conflict. Is it was there that hunger to get involved to be able to support safety and security in the public?
1: Very much so. Yes, it is the role that you're you're trained for, and certainly nobody took took a step back because, going back to my previous point, if, if you didn't do it, who was going to do it? Yeah, you know, it it fell to to SO nineteen, armed response vehicles and the specialist firearms teams to go and look for these people whilst protect London, work with the security services to identify whether there was more people out there that were seeking. To do us harm and yes you know, the reality is if you don't do that job there is nobody else that's going to do it so it, it falls to you and you understand the weight of responsibility that is on you you've, all, you've already got that because you're a firearms officer in the first place you're now in this scenario whereby suicide bombers have come to the uk um, as a concept that we've already had one series of detonations and we've now had a second lot um, that weren't as successful from a terrorist perspective. But nonetheless, these people are still out there and, and you've got to go and find them before there are further attacks because that was the general feeling. You know, If these people are still out in the populace, then they are going to launch further attacks because that's their ideal, um, the ideology that they've got. You know, they, they failed in their first attempt, therefore they must now seek and succeed in their second attempt. And that was the pressure that was put on um, S19 was to go and find kind of those people um, both in terms in the proactive role that the SFOs were dealing with and then in the, um, the security patrol role that the ARVs uh, and the reactive role that the ARVs were dealing with as well whereby you know, people are now saying you know, there's a guy just got off the train with a rucksack you know, he's kind of looking um, particularly uh, conspicuous if he's going to do us harm you know, you've got to make in that kind of split second where this is an individual who's going to do you harm. Um, or he's just a little bit confused because he's got off with the wrong tube stop because he's not um, not local to London or he wasn't concentrating. And he's you know rushing, rushing for a job interview and, and all these things, all these factors you've got to kind of put into place. And But the weight of responsibility fell to the Metropolitan Police Service and uh, certainly the 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 actionable part of that to SO-19.
0: Was there was there a, a part of you during that period of your time within armed response before you moved on to royalty, which we'll move on to very shortly, where it was almost kind of a, a pinch-yourself moment? Here you are, you know, in amongst one of the greatest issues London's ever faced. You're no doubt working alongside other government agencies such as the Security Service who are providing intelligence and support in terms of the people that they may be observing, who they consider to be a risk and a threat, and you're being called into certain events. It must be quite... I don't know, dare I say it, an exciting on edgy seat type of role during that period?
1: Very much so. And I'd seen it previously in response to the 9-11 attacks because yeah. when I was on the TSG, um, central TSG were the only CBRN-trained unit um, in the Met at the time. So in response to the previous 9-11 attacks, a lot of the the weight of responsibility fell to central TSG to go and have a look at, Stuff that was put in the post had and turned up with various buildings and and so on and so forth. So you know, I'd already gone through it in one aspect, whereby yes, it was edge of the seat stuff, you know, and it was life-threatening, stroke, life-changing situations that you were dealing with. Um, and now being at So nineteen, yes, it was just in a different role in response to that threat. But you know, it, it was constant. It was a long. It was a long time in work before things settled down. You know, working extended hours, working your days off, um, you know, getting home and thinking, right, okay, well, I've only got a couple hours of hours sleep because so we're going to be back in again. You know, all teams across the whole department, um, ARVs and SFOs, were constantly in work for a period of several weeks after that. And um, you know, the the firearms department then S nineteen was nowhere near as big. As it is now, in my time on the ARVs, we deployed three cars north of the river and three cars south of the river. That was it, you know, with a couple of spare cars in between that dealt with dealt with changeovers. You know, now you're in a scenario of having 20 cars north of the river, 20 cars south of the river, dedicated terrorist patrols. You know that that department has been expanded beyond all recognition to what we used to do, um, but that's in response. To the threat and where we are where we are now
0: well just very quickly for our viewers who are outside the country what's the difference between an sfo and your armed response vehicles
1: so armed response vehicles if you want to split that between arvs and sfo's armed response vehicles will deal with um, reactive criminality so reports of an armed robbery reports of um, a gangland shooting happening now and the armed response vehicles will go and deal with that. They will go and look to apprehend the suspects. They will go and put a safe area in for other emergency services to work such as um, the London Ambulance Service. The the SFOs, they were a progression within SO19. They were a separate course again, a many, many um, weeks kind of course. And they they had a more proactive role. They would work more closely with the security services. They would work more closely with the anti-terrorist branch and the flying squad and actually have a proactive role of of dealing with the criminals who had made the decision um, to go and rob a bank. And the intelligence was as such that um, the flying squad would conduct the investigation, uh, the surveillance, the intelligence up to that point, and then S19 would go and apprehend the suspects in the safest possible means. So those were the two sides Sides of the of the department, and you know, if you wanted to, you could you could progress from the RVs to SFOs, and there was also firearms training as well, which was all kept within S19. So you know that everybody had equal opportunity to to explore those different different parts of the of the department, and and you were encouraged kind of to do so as well. You know, not everybody was suitable for SFOs, and not everybody was suitable for uh, firearms training instructors as well. But that's how. That's how the department was structured.
0: Let's talk about your time in protection work and that transition from SO19 into the protection work. Now, when you moved into this field in 2007, you've got two real different departments. You've got diplomatic protection group, which is your politicians and your officials coming, you know, locally based. And then you've got royalty protection, two very different groups, and, and obviously, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, they're now blended into kind of one unit, which, you know, everybody gets divvied out appropriately and works on various different projects. But you apply to go to that. It was obviously your dream to go there. You make the application to go there. Was it a first time application and you were lucky and fortunate to be selected for the course? You know, and routinely, those courses are incredibly difficult to pass and require an awful lot of skill, determination, and an understanding as to the complexities of the challenges of of risk management and looking after very well-known, popular people. Tell us about that transition.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, royalty protection came out in uh, I think it was the summer of two thousand and six, and I was a I was a PC at the time, and uh, it hadn't come out for PCs for something like six or seven years before that hadn't come out in orders as a, as a, as a placement. And, um, I, my daughter had just been born. My first daughter had been born in the, in the February of 2006. And I had considered at that point going to firearms training to give, um, some form of, uh, regularity in my life so that I knew what I was doing and, um, I could kind of support my wife bringing up our, our first child. And it, um, and Rodsie came out, and it was kind of like, right, okay, um, that's not great timing, you know, and, <laughs> it is and the kind of, in. yeah, you know, how do I have this conversation you know, with my wife? And um, you know, we did have the conversation, and and as with everything that I've done, she has been uh, exceptionally supportive throughout the whole of my my career, both in the police and now what I do in the private sector, you know, she has been always behind me. And, and she, you know, just looked at it and said, look, it hasn't come out for another six years. You know, what happens if it doesn't come out for another six years after that? You know, where, where will you be at that, at that point? You know, you, you're going to have to go with it. And as with lots of things that we did and doing our lives, we'll just have to deal with it. So that's what we did. And I applied. I was fortunate that quite a few of the courses I'd already gone through. I was already um, an advanced driver, a class one advanced driver, which you needed to be to go to royalty. I was already a firearms officer. So I still had to go through the the whole process. Um, and the process for for royalty is a, a paper application in response to the, the notice that you can apply for the post. Uh, then after that, you have an interview with senior members of royalty protection to see ultimately if they if they like what they see and feel whether they can Train that individual to to what they want. You also go through an assessment phase, um, and that that you're assessed on your ability to be a protection officer. Um, so whilst you're not trained on being a protection officer, you're trained on the ability to be a protection officer. And that that's very much a mindset. How do you how do you react under pressure? How do you communicate? How do you uh, listen to instruction? How do you give instruction? How do you prioritize? Um, information that's kind of given to you, and how do you give that that back? Um, and then they say, "Yeah, okay, you know, you you've passed all that bit. You have now got to go on your courses." And in my time of applying for royalty protection, if you failed any part, even if it was the last part, which was your actual um, protection officer's course, your application is withdrawn, and you cannot apply for another twelve months. Wow! So very much a, a lot of pressure. A, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And, you know, they they know what they want. You know, they know the type of candidate that they want. They know what they can work with because, you know, royalty protection, very similar to SO1, military, uh, ministerial and specialist protection. They, they know what they want. They know what works. So, you know, they, they will see things in you that they know that they can work with as much as they will see things in other people that they know they can't work with. So I did that bit and then I went on. The protection course then was in two parts. You did your your reactive protection officer's course, which was the the very much the physical side of things the the shooting and the fighting all rolled into one. Um, and then you then went on your your um, what was called the Viper course, VIP protection officer's course, um, which in department terms was called the knives and forks course. You know, learn how to be a protection officer and operate that environment. And all told, you're looking at about About seven weeks, kind of courses split into two parts. That took me right up to the to the end of two thousand and six. Went back to S nineteen over Christmas. Then got given a date of the twentieth of February two thousand and seven. Sticks in my mind because that's my birthday on the twentieth of February as well. So so it really sticks in my mind. Wow! And I went to went to royalty protection. And um, yeah, you know that was another. Fantastic part of my career. You know, I joined with I joined with people that I had been on courses with. I knew some people that had gone there on um, previously as sergeants, and I knew some people because of the firearms part, whereby some of our training had overlapped between SO19 and SO14, both in terms of the training itself and the fact that sometimes you were you were at the Mets Training Centre um, all at the same time. So again you're in the scenario of having to prove yourself again. People accept Simon Morgan as, as the person, but now they've got to accept Simon Morgan as the protection officer. And, um, yeah, another another new start and another steep learning curve.
0: You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Metropolitan Police Sergeant Simon Morgan. In part two, Simon and I discuss the challenges of royalty protection and there's sometimes very normal examples of remembering that those that you are protecting are just, in reality, another family. A family that laughs, jokes, cries, celebrates, and mourns like anyone else in society.
1: The Duke of Edinburgh was the first first principal happened. Uh, he kind of just walked past us, didn't acknowledge us at all, opened the door to the, to the bothy, stuck his head in, and said, oh, not too many candles tonight.
0: All this and more Next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley.